Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things. I'm Tyler Huckabee. Uh, we do have a show about Daredevil uh, coming up here with the rest of the team uh, that we actually recorded yesterday, we recorded on Sunday night, but it is Monday now and this morning we heard that Stan Lee had passed away at the age of 95. Didn't feel right for this podcast to let that go without us making some sort of mention of it. So this is just a brief prelude to the Daredevil episode to talk a little bit about Stan and the legacy that he leaves behind. Uh, the rest of the team won't be joining me for this before we get into our regularly recorded episode. But I want to take a few minutes just to talk about Stan before we get into that. And we'll have everybody back on uh, later in the week to record an episode with all of us together to talk a little more about Stan Lee and what he did for Marvel Comics. P.T. Barnum, Ronald McDonald, Walt Disney, even DJ Khaled. Uh, in the wake of Stanley's death, fans and, and memorial writers like me have been scrambling for some sort of pop culture analog to the footprint that Stan leaves behind. And I have another one that's going to sound a little off, but I do think I can back it up. Don Draper. Not in terms of being like a suave womanizer or even a snappy dresser maybe, but at a deeper, more substantive level, I do think it holds. Like Don, Stan was a master marketer, uh, an incomparable weaver of stories that mixed the thing that you desired most with the thing that he needed to sell you. Like Don, Stan really believed in the work. He took a lot of pride in it. And like Don, it was an act. Don Draper is actually Dick Whitman. Stan Lee is actually Stan Lieber. As Stan would always tell it, he spent his early days at Marvel figuring that one day he'd get out of superhero stories to write the great American novel, and he wouldn't want the embarrassing kid comic stuff soiling his resume. So he created a pen name, Stan Lee, as a placeholder. But something funny happened, and uh, Stan realized that superhero comics could be an avenue for the more mature themes he'd been saving for his actual grown-up career. He realized that superhero fans were growing up and weren't interested in the juvenile super friends stories they'd been raised on anymore. So Stan created the Fantastic Four and the Hulk and Spider-Man as more developed characters who felt more mature emotions like insecurity and jealousy and regret. If uh, the golden years of superhero comics in the 1940s and 50s with the creation of Superman and Captain America and Wonder Woman can be thought of the, as the genre's childhood, Stan brought it into adolescence and the like, requisite emotional turmoil thereof. That wasn't his only innovation, for sure. He crafted what's called the Marvel Method, in which basically he would just give an artist the broad strokes of an issue's plot and then send the artist out to draw the panels in whatever way they saw fit. And then they would bring their drawings back to Stan to who would fill in the word bubbles with actual dialogue. So that was a good way for one writer like Stan to make a lot of comics very quickly. It also meant, of course, that the artist oftentimes didn't get all the credit they fully deserved for taking very general plot concepts and turning them into actual stories. But Stan was good at juggling lots of stories at once. So good, in fact, that he laid down an early rule. All the comics Marvel made were happening in the same place, at the same general time. Their characters could run into each other. They could team up. They'd fall out. They'd date. They'd fight. Whatever. It was a logistical nightmare. 
and it still is, uh, but few could have guessed at the fruit this would eventually bear in the comics and, of course, eventually on film, as we all know now. But Stan's real legacy, I think, looms a lot larger than that. His title at Marvel was editor while he was there, but his public role was really more of a showman, writing his letters from the editor with his famous loquacious alliteration in which he'd welcome the matchless merry marching band of Marvelites into the hallowed halls of the beatific bullpen, which Stan would depict as this endless carnival of wacky hijinks and creative brilliance. And if you were a fan, you were part of the Marvel family, with Stan the Man Lee as your glinty-eyed ringleader and Jolly Jack Kirby, sturdy Steve Ditko, laughing Larry Lieber, and all the rest as your rakish welcoming pals. Was it real? Sort of. Maybe. It's hard to know. And that's where Stan's genius comes in. He got you to buy into not just the characters or the adventures, but the idea of Marvel Comics as a whole. Today, it's called branding, but before that, it was called fandom. And for Stan, it was just a mix of good business, creative ambition, and let's face it, a big ego. Because Stan always wanted more for his comics. He pushed his team, but even more, he pushed the rest of the world to accept that his co-creations were worthy of more than their niche nerd subculture. He deeply believed that Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the rest could be Hollywood gold. Uh, early attempts like Lou Ferrigno's old Hulk show, a barely remembered stab at a live action Spider-Man show in the late seventies and a notoriously awful Captain America movie in 1990 are remembered mostly as joke fodder if they're remembered at all. But Lee never gave up hope and his brand was closely tied enough with Marvel that when Sam Raimi and Brian Singer kickstarted the age of superhero movies with their Spider-Man and X-Men movies, Lee's cameo in both was taken as a given He's made an appearance in almost every Marvel property since, serving the same role he served for most of his adult life. A wink to the audience, a slap on the back, a reminder that this is all happening because of your crazy fun genius pals over at Marvel Comics. Those cameos are over now, although Lee has reportedly recorded at least a few more for Captain Marvel and Avengers 4 at the very least. But Stan has signed off for the last time, his legacy more than secure in the universe he crafted, fine-tuned, peddled, and eventually popularized into American mythology. There are few people alive today who don't know at least a few of Stan's characters, few who aren't at least a little tangentially familiar with the world he created. And if that's not the great American novel, what is? Excelsior. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town. We're a superhero podcast about superhero things. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Shunblood. I'm Hannah Mazel. And I'm Ryan Ham. And I still wish that I had like that I could go right into the sponsor. This week is brought to you by I feel like those days are still ahead of us. Like yeah. the, the time is going <laughs> to come for them, but we don't actually I've got nothing right now. I guess we could just kind of randomly talk about products that we like. Squarespace. <laughs> I mean, I, I have nothing against Squarespace. So I would just rather they pay us to talk about them instead Squarespace of Squarespace is a great <laughs> web hosting platform. If you go Google Squarespace 10% off, there's probably another podcast that has a code you can enter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe as part of our service, we could just like collect a few like codes to yeah. people could <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like podcast slash coupon cabin. Like we can help find you a, a couple deals for Squarespace. Yeah. 20% off your entire purchase at Michael's Craft Stores. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of those. Time for the holidays. <laughs> yeah, I got some I got some Bed Bath and Neon coupons I can throw in too. <laughs> you can probably find a connection there because I do think a really underexplored element of superhero comics is where they get the materials to create the costume that they use. And I know like they've like some comics have gotten into how that actually happens, but I like the idea of someone just going down to Michael's and throwing a few things in the cart and doing the best that he can with what he has. And maybe our listeners would appreciate a discount at Michael's so that they could try their hand at it too, at least for their Halloween costume, if nothing else. It's no called doubt. cosplay and it's an art form. <laughs> I wish you would give it a little bit more respect. <laughs> That's like a world. I guess they go. To, they probably go to Michael's. I've seen every now let's and then. Let's move on before we get tweets. <laughs> from yeah. the, the cosplay fandom. Yeah, telling us how wrong we are. We have a lot of love for the cosplayers, and wherever you choose to shop for your cosplay goods, uh, we support it, and we would like to give you a discount code for it. <laughs> <laughs> we can't because we don't have any sponsors yet. We recommend um, you pull up Google. this week we are going to be talking about daredevil the third season of daredevil came out now i think about two weeks ago um but we're getting into and we're going to be talking about um, a particular run in this case but before we get into that like we always do we're going to talk about a little bit of superhero news and there were some kind of weird ones this week i feel like there's there's no major announcements but there's kind of a lot of maybe announcements the first one and maybe the weirdest one is uh, or maybe the most nebulous one, and I think you guys probably saw this. We at least we tweeted about it on the Cape Town podcast Twitter account. So if you follow us, then you should have seen it. Is that John Cena tweeted a picture or Instagrammed a picture rather of the Captain America shield uh, with no comment around it, no caption or anything like that. But that's all we need to start thinking, to start speculating irresponsibly about what that could mean. Because it does seem weird. That's a little off-brand for John Cena, based on my very limited knowledge of his social media presence. The rest of his stuff is like videos of him being uh, very motivational for people going to work out, which is very good, and also some pro wrestling things. Again, this is not my world. If it is your world, please don't get mad at us about this. But the Captain America shield was evidently off-brand for him, and it has people thinking that he might be coming to the MCU in some sort of Captain America way. What do you guys think? Did you think about this? Or did you see this at all? Or is this new information? I saw it. So nothing else has actually come out about it. He just threw the photo of the shield up and just kind of left it out there. Literally just the shield. That's all we get to go off of here. Perfect. <laughs> Didn't it have like a like Wolverine scratch on it? It was Black Panthers. It's from Civil oh, War. Yeah, it's it from the fight from War. Shield okay. from Civil War that has the... Um, claw marks on it i think i saw someone um interacting with us uh on twitter that was talking about how he could be a great um was it uh, i'm blanking nuke i think nuke was one possibility oh yeah yeah like who is showcased on jessica jones but definitely could like they could definitely make that transition and like when you think of like when i think of like somebody who embodies like especially physically that uh that person like he would totally be a great fit for that but yeah like i honestly like i can't imagine like there's no way that he's actually going to be the person who's picking up the shield like he no. doesn't have the acting chops to do that yeah. so he's not going to be our next captain america or anything like that but i do right. think especially with what we know about the upcoming uh, Falcon and Bucky uh, show that's coming out on this new Marvel streaming platform, apparently called Disney Plus. 
what we know about that is that there would probably need to be some sort of Captain America surrogate, or maybe the government is trying to find a new Captain America. And John and Cena would make sense as, and this has happened a few times in the comics, most notably with, with Nuke and, uh, and then also with U.S. Agent. Uh, one of the dumbest names Marvel's can ever come up with, U.S. Agent, who is sort of a Captain America surrogate and who is also a little more of an obedient, sort of willing Captain America grunt who just sort of follows orders and does what he's told to do without Captain America's moral code. Uh, it's pretty easy for me to see the the Bucky and Falcon show using him as maybe some sort of antagonist. But Again, we're, we're reading a lot into an Instagram post right here, but I, I don't think it's weird to think that John Cena would be posting that to tease some sort of Captain America involvement. And I don't think it would be ridiculous for Marvel to bring John Cena into the MCU because he's a, he's a big name right now. And I'm sure the Cena, the, the C Nation would be very excited to see that too. I'm not one of you, but I respect you from a distance. I'm just proud of you for even knowing that, <laughs> I didn't knowing know. what they're called. That's nice. Um, speaking of Disney Plus, we did get confirmation that the Loki show is really happening this week, and that actually Tom Hiddleston is going to be starring in it. Um, how do you guys feel about a Loki TV show starring Tom Hiddleston? What do you think? I'm fine with it. Like, I I think the biggest thing is just like where is it going to fall in the timeline? Um, because yeah, it's just that's my big question. I I have to imagine people who are going to be tuning in they'll probably do a really good job of explaining where it falls in and like if even if it's past post infinity war like how he is still around Mm -hmm. if it is post infinity war it's going to be one of those things where it just cheapens like the weight of death in these movies again and i would so i'd really hate that so i do hope that they like take an actual like pre-thor stories or anything like that i'm fine with it just because i love his take on loki uh, but it could have been cool to actually see like what they would do with a lady loki or yeah. a kid loki or anything else like that i'm definitely in the same boat as you were i'm like cautiously fine with it what i would be disappointed by is if because his was the first really big uh death in infinity war and that was that was surprising and it was uh i mean it wasn't super surprising but it was but it was a real death it was a real loss and, and i would hope that they don't reverse that i'm okay with it if we're just seeing some of like loki's further adventures before he died in infinity war that would be interesting to me i'm not super interested in a resurrection even though those do happen in comic books sometimes so i wouldn't be super surprised by it i will say like i do think they could do a resurrection well with loki um where if they did have kid loki like tom hiddleston could sort of service his uh like like remember in Dexter, how his dad was like basically a co-star for the whole first couple seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he has something like that where Tom Hiddleston is like guiding his you know new incarnation through hmm. the that's true through the realms of being the god of mischief. I guess my biggest question is like I mean I'm curious about timeline, but I'm also curious about budget. Um, because if it's going to be set on Asgard and they don't have much money, it's going to look really bad. It would be easy for these shows, all of the ones we've heard announced so far, to look pretty stupid if they don't put the requisite money into it. And I hope they don't do, I really hope that they don't view this as like their attempt to do a Marvel game of Thrones. Cause that sounds mm-hmm. terrible. I'm definitely okay with <laughs> one game of Thrones is plenty game of Thrones for me in the world. And I don't need a one to be like an Asgardian game of Thrones. Hannah, where are you at in a Tom Hiddleston Loki show? My mind didn't even go to a, to a game of Thrones, like Marvel thing. Um, that would that would be disturbing. 
I like Ryan's idea. At first, I'm I'm kind of feeling the way the rest of you are, but just kind of like optimistically feeling good about it because I love Tom Hiddleston. But just considering like his was definitely one death in Infinity War that felt real, like that mm-hmm. most like most likely like he wouldn't be coming back from that, like as opposed to some of the other main characters when they vanish. So I like the idea of there him being kind of like some kind of like spiritual guide, if you will, um, or like the undead Loki. I don't know, zombie Loki. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I I love Tom Hiddleston. So if it was anyone else, and then maybe a different, like a less dynamic, charismatic character from this from the MCU, I might be a little more like put off by the idea of a character who we just who had a pretty impactful death but i feel feel kind of optimistic considering it's tom hiddleston and he's done such a good job with that character so he deserves a little bit of faith it is a little hard for me to see them not giving this sort of whatever budget they ask for like there's obviously if you can get actors of this caliber like tom hiddleston uh elizabeth olsen like these are pretty big names to be putting on tv if they can do that they might as well just go the extra mile and and make these like must see television by making sure that they look good at least yeah people will notice if they're not there was obviously also some announcements about some new star wars tv shows coming to this this week their disney's obviously taking a long time uh getting their their streaming service put together because they wanted to be competitive with netflix and I think the way to do that is by dumping a bunch of money into it, which Disney definitely has right now. I Yeah, I think cautiously optimistic is a good way to put it. But we've been burned on Marvel TV shows before, so I, I'm still a little cautious about it. I am also cautious a little bit about this Watchmen TV show, which we did get a little more news about this week. It's coming out in in January, I think, and we haven't heard a ton of it for a show coming out as soon as it is. But evidently, Jeremy Irons, who we knew was cast in it, didn't really know what he was going to be. Uh, but it sounds like he is going to be playing Ozymandias in the show. Uh, if you haven't read the comic, the, you should. But Ozymandias is sort of a, a uh, anti-hero or a superhero who has his very own, his own kind of secretive, not necessarily good ends. Um, but he's also a genius and, and uh, he's... He's a very major figure in it. I like Jeremy Irons as the casting for it. I do. I think it makes a lot of sense. But I'm still just really not sure what this Watchmen show even is. What network is it going to be on? HBO. HBO. Well, they've done well with things in the past. Yeah. And, like, the the casting is amazing. Like, Jeremy Irons as Ozymandias is great. Yeah, I think so, too. And, like, having Gene Smart do anything is also great. Yes. I think that... I think that HBO is the right show for this. I, I do like Lindelof a lot, and I, I like Damon Lindelof as being in charge of this. They've been very um, secretive about whether this is a sequel or an adaptation. It's not a direct adaptation, but it doesn't sound like it's a it's Watchmen 2 either. It sounds like it's going to be kind of something in between. It's hard to know quite how to feel about that, but I think Watchmen, as I think we've said before, Watchmen as a book that was of its time, I think was very, very good. And, and it deserves its place in the canon as being sort of a classic of superhero comic fiction. I think that some of its themes haven't aged particularly well. Uh, and I think it, so it needs an updating. It, it could use a sort of a reconfiguring for 2018, 2019 by the time it comes out. 
but it's also that's a complicated one. That's a hard thing to update. So I, I I'll be really curious for a trailer just to give us some idea of what we're even getting ourselves into with this. Because at this point, I just don't know. I wonder what Alan Moore thinks of this adaptation. <laughs> I assume he's living somewhere with his snake god and uh, with his like multiple partners that yeah, he, his harem. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if he's even aware that this is happening. I would be very surprised. <laughs> I would still appreciate a soundbite from Alan Moore's people. Oh, I am always down for an Alan Moore soundbite because they are always interesting. Alan Moore uh, wrote Watchmen is, is a very looms large over superhero comics, but he also is in some sort of polyamorous community where they worship a snake God. Um, I know we just said all that, but we weren't joking. That, that's yeah. all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's trained under a wizard yeah. so so he's he's definitely got his and he seems to have little to no interest in any adaptation of his work i mean to be fair to him there hasn't been a good one no there has no so. nothing has ever the closest thing to a good one probably was v for vendetta which was even though it had the opposite message of the graphic novel and he <laughs> he hated it uh yeah. he did come out of his hole to talk about how much he disliked v for vendetta so it, yeah He's, I would be a little bit cold on adaptations, too, if I were him at this point, yeah. even if I wasn't worshipping a snake god. I am really curious, though, because like I think um, it feels like they've lined up the talent and the ability to do this really well. And um, I have not, like some people on this podcast, I have not seen all of the leftovers yet. Um, I'm working my way through it. But that kind of tonal, I think that like that tone and kind of the weirdness that it encapsulates, I think is a really good fit for Watchmen. Do you think it's a better fit for Watchmen than Zack Snyder? Or? Uh, <laughs> like, I actually think like you could position a chair in front of a camera and that would be a better fit for <laughs> Zack Snyder for Watchmen. Oh, I was also going to say also like, this is, you know, not as much of a selling point necessarily, but um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are doing the score uh, for the show. Which is selling point. Like really good. Yeah. They have, everything they need in place for this to be good. Like, yeah, exactly. Looking at it on a sheet of paper, this looks like it could be a really great television show. And I hope it lives up to the promise. I mean, I do feel like like this is for HBO's first superhero show, right? Well, I guess Spawn, technically. Oh, but, uh, but it feels like this is a chance for HBO to really put its HBO stamp on on Watchmen. And like they know Game of Thrones is ending in you know eight months so they need their um, they gotta get that they gotta get that cash flow in there somehow yeah no it's a property that you know i feel like is appropriate for hbo as opposed to like taking something that younger audiences might have wanted or you know we would have wanted for younger audiences to enjoy like watchmen was never meant Mm -hmm. for 12 year old kids to yeah to understand or appreciate so it, it makes sense and i'm glad it's on a like on a network like hbo that will do well with the more adult themes do any of you know like when it's set? That's an, that was another one of my big questions. Think even, I don't think we know. Okay. And Jeremy Irons is out and he's obviously like this has got to be then a few years post. Yeah. Because uh, Watchmen is pretty pretty clearly set in the like it's very much a product of the Reagan administration. Well, and that's what I'm wondering. Like he, so Lindelof said he was remixing it. That his word was remix. Yeah. Yeah. So like I'm assuming that it'll still be like the story of the original graphic novel will still be in there partly. I would think so too. And I think it's, if you've read the comic, you're aware that it plays with time. Very, very time is a very fluid concept in the Watchmen. They take the changing, uh, particularly of American, uh, of American politics and American administrations very seriously uh, in the way that different American politicians and political legacies impact America's place in the world. So 
I would say there's material there if you wanted to do some yeah. sort of commentary on American politics in 2019. I feel like the news has offered us some things to play with. Uh, whether or not this show is going to be, the, I, in my mind, the first TV show to really do a compelling commentary on the Trump administration remains to be seen. But again, I, I think that's... Well, that show has been made and it is called Veep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Veep, which predated the Trump administration, but has yeah. remained still the best commentary on the Trump administration. Yeah. That's true. Well, there's certainly enough fear, Yeah, I feel like, yeah. in the world to, to just feed off of that. And you can really go anywhere from there. And in uh, the graphic novel, it's like a, an extended Nixon presidency, right? Isn't that yes. kind of part yeah. of it? Yeah. yeah. So... I feel like if they're taking actual real life events, you know, happening in real time, obviously depends on when the actual like the show is taking place. I said there's plenty of relevant newsworthy things happening. I think it'll be really compelling. So you said Damon Lindelof is doing it? Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. If I was going to pick somebody, he would definitely be on the list of of people who I I would watch. I would only watch a Watchmen show in the event of blank making it. Linda Lock. You would only watch the Watchmen. <laughs> I haven't seen Strange. Uh, what's the what's the show? Um, leftovers. Leftovers. I was gonna say the Strangers. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I live under a rock sometimes. Um, I have not seen the Leftovers. So the last thing I saw from Damon Lindelof was Prometheus. Oh gosh. I, think. I know, right? Didn't leave a great yeah. like yeah. taste in my mouth with his storytelling style. If he just wanted to redo the Leftovers with characters from the Watchmen, I'd be completely fine with it. Like I'd be, I'd sign up for that. Leftovers is, I, I can't say enough good things about the leftovers. Yeah, we'll never stop talking about it on yeah. the show. So. Until, all, until at least you two have seen it. If we can't get our two co-hosts to see it, then I hope at least listeners will listen to, <laughs> will watch the leftovers because it is, it is just ascending seasons of greatness. I was gonna say I know we're asking people to uh, weigh in more on episodes, which I think is a great idea. Um, and one thing I would be curious to know is if anyone would like us to do something about Watchmen. Seems like we should. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a major event, but it's almost, yeah. it's kind of hard to know what where to go with that one. But yes, we should absolutely. If anybody would like to hear our take on the Watchmen, uh, I don't even know where I'd begin with that one. It's almost like embarrassment of riches to write about or to, to talk about there. That which is great. It'd be, just be a long episode, yeah. which this is already turning into because we've been talking <laughs> about a news item for the past twenty minutes. If we can get um, Alan Moore to say something, even if it's just like a, a recorded grunt, I think we'll have done something <laughs> amazing. We could go after Alan Moore. How would he know if we just decided to have somebody like bring on somebody else to pretend to be him because of his divination of <laughs> uh, snake entrails during his sex magic? That God of death sex would tell him in a vision he'd come. <laughs> someone build a sweat lodge and make it happen i don't know <laughs> <laughs> two other short pieces of news two bits of casting news uh we have a bad guy for the upcoming uh, birds of prey movie ewan mcgregor is going to be black mask in this birds of prey movie as somebody who reads a lot of comics and i know black mask is a big deal in the comics but he's still not somebody i know a ton about in the comics have any of you read any more Black Mask than I have? I've read zero. I've read zero. I'm trying to remember if I've read it. Was he, he was the bad guy in Batman R.I.P., right? Yeah, yeah, Batman R.I.P. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I've read I've read some of him when he's in uh, like Batman comics. He's basically just, I think, a no-power bad guy, like a mob boss, basically, who wears a black mask. That's his one and only thing that he's got going for him. 
I don't think he has any like powers or anything like that, which I kind of like for a, for a superhero show when they, when the bad guy doesn't have like, when it doesn't involve a giant beam of light from the sky in the third act that they have to blow up or stop or stick something in it to make it stop going like just a regular, normal mob boss type bad guy sounds kind of refreshing. Yeah. I was about to say they have to walk it back from, and it was an enchantress or whatever. And it was in suicide. Yeah. Cara Delevingne. Like, I feel like they just have to walk it back just a little bit. So I think this could be a really good grounded direction, especially with like these all being pretty street level, uh, street level heroes and anti-heroes there was a rumor that they wanted the penguin for this but uh that the penguin is maybe going to be used in this new batman script that's coming up so they had to go with a kind of a second tier bad guy but both penguin and black mask are basically just uh yeah mobsters and ewan mcgregor occupies kind of an interesting place in the pop culture sphere but i would say i'm generally more pro ewan mcgregor than anti him so that'll be cool it could be good sure and then, Chris, you take to this. I kind of forgotten about this, but it is interesting and, and could potentially reveal a few things about uh, where Avengers 4 is going to go. But Catherine Langford is, has been cast in a mystery role in Avengers 4. Does anybody know who Catherine Langford is? I don't know if anyone else has watched 13 Reasons Why, but I watched the first season of that. You 13 Reasons Why? Yeah. Okay. So that's her. But like outside of that, I really don't. I don't know if she's been in much else. Have you read any rumors about who she might be playing? The one rumor that I have seen is that she was going to uh, fall into Kate Bishop. Mm-hmm. And um, so, like, even with the rumor picking up that uh, Disney streaming site is actually going to be pursuing either a Hawkeye movie or uh, or series, uh, it could be, like, that's based around a younger Hawkeye training a, like, younger apprentice. This could end up being what that is. So yeah, who knows? Like I know that they've like also cast uh, a few people for like um, Cassidy Lang, Cassie Lang, Young Um, Avengers. Yeah, so like there's there's also just like the potential for that. Like so they have a few things that they could end up introducing over in Avengers Four, just kind of setting up the future. If she was playing an older Cassie, who we saw in Ant Man and the Wasp, then that would support the rumor that Avengers Four takes place actually uh, a few years in the future. Like there's quite a bit of Time passage from Avengers Four. Someone else has actually already been cast as Cassie. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm saying like, uh, so Catherine Langford could end up like filling the role of Kate Bishop and Being a Kate character. Yeah, and then them taking like an actual young Avengers approach that would to, be cool. um, yeah, to the next phase. I would like it. I'm trying to be really careful how much we talk about Avengers Four because we don't want to a spoil it or b get so get kind of our, our heads stuck up our butts talking about rumors for the whole time because nobody really knows anything about Avengers Four right now. We don't want to all turn into Chris, basically, is what Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Chris and I did our one Avengers like deep dive into Avengers Four rumors, and I'll have you all know that it was a very popular episode with a lot of downloads. And you guys weren't right; you won't even listen to it. So that's on you. But all of our fans love it. We'll do more of it. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about a show that we have seen or we've seen most of. We want to get into Daredevil Season 3, which has been out for a while now. Hopefully long enough that you're that most people who want to watch it have seen at least some of it. Uh, so we can talk about it a little bit freely here. I, I want to start just by saying that Daredevil Season 3, I, I felt like going into it, it could have gone one of two ways. Daredevil Season 1, I like most people, liked a lot. Daredevil season two really lost me. I thought season two went off the rails about halfway through. Although I, I did like the Punisher stuff a lot. Defenders was kind of a struggle. It, w- it was a little bit of a slog. 
so I just wasn't sure. Was Daredevil going to continue to be uh, kind of the best part of what they're trying to do on Netflix right now? Or was it going to go the way that the rest of these shows are tending to go uh, with Luke Cage being kind of a disappointment, Iron Fist getting canceled, even after they, they tried to raise the stakes and, and did okay with their second season, they didn't do well enough. Jessica Jones season two kind of came and went. There, there was a lot riding on this. And with Daredevil season three out, I, I feel like they've kind of towards maybe the end of this Netflix experiment outdone themselves. I think it might be the best season of TV they've done so far for Netflix. I just really, really loved the entirety of this series. How'd you guys feel? I will say I, I haven't finished the season. I'm only halfway done, but I mean, it's hands down like some of the best TV that like Marvel has put out. Yeah. I'd say it is like the strongest season so far that I've even seen, especially bringing back Kingpin, who is just such a strong character, such a great presence. I think like when you're comparing acting ability, Wilson Fisk, his, like the actor who plays Wilson Fisk, he, he he is like leaps and bounds better than a lot of other um, <laughs> yeah. a lot of other actors that For they sure. brought in. Vincent D'Onofrio and Charlie Cox are they're, they're it's electric when they're on screen, and, and it's they really sell despite the fact that they don't have that long of a history based on the timeline of the show. They really sell the sort of immortal foes feeling, the, the sense that these are two people who. Uh, are, are in the true sense of the word arch enemies. They they are diametrically opposed to each other and, and truly hate each other and will do anything to stop each other. And you don't realize how rare that is to see until you see it done as well as the third season of Daredevil does it, um, setting their their tension and their competition up as a as a sort of moral uh, fate of their whole entire universes, like they were brought into the universe to oppose each other. It's very compelling stuff to watch. It's also a reminder of how well, I mean, I think all, probably all the Netflix Marvel shows, but I feel like the only ones who really got away with it were the first season of Daredevil and the first season of Jessica Jones. Like how good those shows can be when they don't have to tell some universe expanding story. To me, the weakest part of season two of Daredevil by far was the Electra storyline because it introduced the hand and it, just kind of fell flat as soon as that started to be the main antagonist instead of the Punisher. And it feels like, you know, for better or worse, with the cancellation of Luke Cage and Iron Fist, that the Netflix Marvel Universe, for, you know, who knows what the actual reason is, but it certainly shrunk. Um, and I think their ability to tell a really contained story, specifically about Daredevil uh, and Matt Murdock and his friends, has been a really powerful choice. You know, you're talking about how the villain that they've created with Wilson Fisk, like it's amazing that they create this kind of tension between him and Matt Murdock with not really, you know, having that much of a history, but I think it's, it speaks to how well they made Wilson Fisk's character and how they developed him uh, like with just small moments, you know, um, whether it's like the flashbacks, his character is so well acted, but everything for him as opposed to like some other villains we've seen where they're just kind of flat like they're just sinister they're just out to like be powerful and evil wilson fist takes things very personally not a whole lot of things but there are things in his life that he takes very personally and when you threaten that it's a huge deal and he kind of you see his insanity in those moments yet he's composed and he has all these other kind of nuances to his character that we just haven't seen really ever i feel like in a villain particularly in a in a, in a superhero villain 
honestly, from season one, he was that good. So bringing him back was super smart in terms of that, you know, season two of Jessica Jones. I didn't even finish. I didn't start season two of Luke Cage and I never watched the Defenders. Um, So I think they definitely needed a win and it was really smart of them to bring back a character whom they've already done such a good job laying the groundwork down. I loved season three, although that shouldn't surprise anyone because I've already confessed to you guys and our listeners that I loved even season two. (laughs) So, (laughs) and I watched it a few times, but they spent a lot of season two just setting up the hand for the defenders and it, it took away from the character development that we, especially of the supporting, you know, team, Karen and Foggy, we kind of just saw those, those characters just kind of stagnate in season two. Let's talk about Karen and Foggy a little bit, because I, I think that what you said is really true, Hannah. I think with Fisk and with Matt and with some of the new characters we have introduced here, you, you have Sister Maggie and Father Lantham, who, who we've seen met before, but who becomes a much more major presence in this season. Um, and then you have Poindexter and you have obviously Karen and Foggy, who we've always had. I felt like all of these characters had much richer emotional and interior lives in this season. For the first time, I didn't get bored when it went over to see what Foggy is doing or what Karen is doing. I I felt like they were hugely improved as real characters who I felt like had lives outside of Matt Murdock or being Matt's friend. They they had things going on in, in their own lives apart from Matt, which was huge and which made them feel much more real and much more interesting as characters. I've been, <laughs> I think we've had this debate before about Foggy, about whether or not Foggy is a good character or not. I feel like uh, like some people have always been Team Foggy, uh, and I have not been one of them, but I, in this season, very much Team Foggy. Where are we all at on Foggy now, the, the Foggy problem? I mean, I don't know if it gets better after episode six, but I'm still just like, I, like his acting ability it just shocks me sometimes. He's not, he's not a good actor. We do have to judge him apart from his talent. Wait, is, isn't that the whole point of judging him? <laughs> All right, I'm, talking, I'm talking about judging him apart from his talent, but I understand if somebody, if you can't cross that hurdle, I can't fault you for that because it's not good. He is the foggy, I feel like, from the comics, though, yeah. in a lot of ways. So I feel like he meets the demands of the character. I don't think any, like, I don't think you need a, like a, a true thespian to play. Uh, Franklin Nelson I think I think that he also like the character of Foggy is really important because the show is pretty serious it's 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 a drama action and and so his character does provide necessary lightness and humor and not that acting ability does not like matter and nor does I mean it matters significantly but I think that he is the perfect Foggy because to me he is the Foggy from the comics Ryan, where do, you, where do you sit? I feel like you you weighed in over text about this, but I can't quite remember what you said. I've always been like pretty anti-Foggy um, and anti-Karen for that matter. Um, but I ended up really liking both of them in this season. I mean, I think part of it is because of what Hannah said. Like, I think they definitely leaned into his portrayal in the comics a lot more. Um, and I think with to a large degree of success. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier where, you know, I don't think they had the weight of world building on their shoulders this time. Um, And so, you know, you could have episodes where Foggy is going home to his family's bookstore shop and like you're seeing kind of the, 
the tensions between the life he's chosen to have versus the life that maybe his parents would have chosen for him, or even the, the life that he feels guilty for leaving behind, even though his parents are happy he did. It just felt like he was a lot more fleshed out. And I would, I mean, I would say actually the same thing for Karen this season too. Yeah. I ended up really liking, really liking both of them this season um, for the most part. Chris, where are you at on Karen? I feel like there have been so like so few scenes where she can't get through it without tearing up or crying at some point. Which, like, before this season, I was, like, all on board. And I feel like we've had this conversation of, like, it doesn't feel like they can have, like, real conversations. There was even, there's even one point where Karen's going to Foggy wanting him to be her lawyer. And then the very, like, next morning, like, when they're talking and she's telling him all the stuff that needs to be, like, attorney-client privilege. She's like, speak to me like you're my friend. And it's just, like, it's just, like, bad writing. It's bad acting. And it like it drives me nuts. It just it, like makes me really want to get to the meat of it, which is like the storyline that I really care about, which is you know, Matt Wilson, Bullseye. Like I want to see all that. And so I feel like the filler story that I'm getting with uh, Foggy and Karen this season so far, just like it's just been like more aggravating than anything else. I think you'll feel differently at the end of the season. I hope so. There's yeah, there's a really good episode. At least I thought it was really good that is really Karen focused. You're talking about the Karen episode. I I do. Like I don't want to like I am absolutely loving the season so far. And so I don't mean to take away from that, but like when I actually take a like when I step back and take a critical look at it, I'm just like I I just want a little bit. They write these like really incredible conversations between matt and uh the nun and like none of that really translates to anyone else speaking besides like whoever wilson fisk you know whoever they're writing wilson uh speaking to so yeah i don't know i just don't like i wish that they would put a little more thought into like how they're actually writing the dialogue between like foggy and someone else and foggy or and karen and someone else because it just even like her and her reporter boss it's just so like classic like 1950s like newsroom kind of dialogue uh at times and i i just like have very little interest in it at this point I do want to and I don't it's not a spoiler to say that there's a very Karen focused episode coming up like you alluded to Hannah which I thought actually worked pretty well that I, I wouldn't have thought that having an episode that that pretty much cleared the board of everybody else for most of its time to focus entirely on Karen would have worked but I thought it did and it sounds like you did too Yeah well I understand what Chris is saying and you know I, Ryan I think has some different issues with Karen <laughs> are we talking are we talking about her <laughs> journalism degree yeah well we'll get there later okay <laughs> but I, yeah. I understand like, I think that Karen is a frustrating character I'm assuming that she's supposed to be frustrating she's like kind of obnoxiously principled about some things um in my opinion woefully unqualified for her job <laughs> there it is <laughs> yeah I could see how you would feel that way and Tyler and the rest of, you know, the journalists who've worked really hard to get to where they are in their careers. Um, I work hard on it. It's a little frustrating to see somebody, but she's obviously qualified. She's, she's earned her strength. Yes. She wrote a blog. It was, you guys, I wish the listeners could just like, we, we, I wish we could like share some screenshots of like your frustrating, uh, you know, text message rants that, <laughs> That, that Chris and I are we actually through. can do that <laughs> I wish we could share screenshots of it but we would lose all of our followers in one day we don't need to do that <laughs> no. and Squarespace would no longer be a <laughs> I think Squarespace would want to get off more of it 
the free, our, our bike rants about the free press. What if I cross stitch it with some products I bought at Michael's with my coupon? <laughs> <laughs> Lose one, but gain one more. But I do think that the Karen episode, it's actually titled Karen, I think. Um, they've kind of like mentioned Karen's backstory in, in past episodes to give her character a little more depth. But I feel like it, it really wasn't enough. Um, because you know, there's like some serious things that have happened in her life, but this episode, I feel like they did a really good job of uncovering those things that are past that kind of have molded her into who she is for better, for worse, um, as it stands in the show. And it worked surprisingly. Cause like, as you said, Tyler, it's really almost the whole episode is just her. So props them for writing a, a you know, a, a female-centered episode. It was a gamble, for sure. But uh, in, in my estimation, it paid off. But I will be interested to hear how you feel about it, Chris. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last character I want to talk about while we're talking about the show is how you guys feel about Poindexter, who is, is not uh, referred to as Bullseye ever, but, but is obviously meant to be a, a, a Bullseye character. Um, and the first real attempt at another antagonist for daredevil besides fisk and the magic ninjas that we've seen who i thought worked really well i, I do want to highlight uh, chris you've only made us you've made it to episode six so you've seen what i think was my favorite action sequence of the whole season which was uh poindexter's raid on the what is what do they call the daily bugle in this show it's not the bugle it's the bulletin yeah the bulletin which i thought was just a fantastic fight like such a i was like i pulled my fingernails out of my own fingers uh, biting them with it, with how tense it was the entire time. And they did a great job in a way that the, the not particularly fondly, remember, fondly remembered uh, Ben Affleck movie did of highlighting what a dangerous character, somebody with bullseyes gimmick can be. They took it out of the realm of being sort of a goofy parlor trick and made it something that was actually a really formidable physical match for daredevil uh, and also made him just a very sadistic uh, character and and really made the murder that he did have real weight to them and, and real chill to them. And it was it, it's good to see in a show that is a superhero show, that is a violent show, still retain some sort of sense of the moral seriousness of the crimes you're seeing on screen, which I thought this that episode in particular did very well. Yeah, I mean, I thought Bullseye was great almost the whole time i mean i thought it was interesting like in the comics and i don't mean this is a criticism like i think he's a little more one note and two-dimensional in the comics like he's just a psychopath um which i think like you know actually works really well for his character um because you know he's one of many villains and he's sort of the wild card that uh matt knows will like murder everyone he can just because he enjoys it and you know he's prone to like lying about his history and things like that this one was interesting because it really like gave the character a pretty fully fleshed out backstory, but at the same time, his like burgeoning psychosis was really interesting too. I thought they did a really good job with this character, and you know, if we get a fourth season, it sure seems like he's going to be back. So I think that portraying what they do, which is showing somebody who's dealing with obviously some PTSD, uh, psychosis, real men- mental illness, I-, I feel like they handled it well. Obviously, it's a very delicate subject. But they they made it clear that he's somebody wrestling with a lot of um, psychopathy and somebody who has tried and failed to deal with those issues in a way that is that is helpful. And bringing in the angle of a, of him being a stalker 
was, I think, another risky move that really paid off by bringing in a very a, a real life issue that that a lot of people deal with in this country, that a lot of women in particular deal with in this country, and and making that a trade of his, an early sign of how dangerous he really is. Um, and it worked to really chilling effect. It, it was uh, it was very very effective and made him, insofar as somebody can be a worthy sort of secondary adversary next to Vincent D'Onofrio's portrayal of Fisk, uh, I think this one worked quite well. Yeah, I think and they also used like the same things they've used with Wilson Fisk's character, those those flashbacks, like the episode where they go back um, and you see him as a young child. He's um, meeting with a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I thought that was such a good episode and really understanding like I, I don't think that I've really seen too many shows dealing with um, like severe mental illness to the point where like someone needs to be, in, you know, institutionalized. And I thought they, they handled that really well. And definitely all of his little safety uh, blankets that he has set up to kind of keep him on the straight and narrow are very interesting. And how when those things start crumbling apart, like like along with it goes his sanity, which I, I thought was just, it made for a really interesting story to tell. And I, I hope they bring him back and I hope we get a season four. Maybe we haven't heard one way or the other about season four, but I would really like to see it. Something that this show, uh, season three in particular, has, is obviously very indebted to is uh, an arc of the comics called Born Again, in which Kingpin finds out who Daredevil's alter ego, discovers that he's Matt Murdock, and sets about sort of systematically destroying his life by taking away his law practice, freezing his bank accounts, uh, taking away his loved ones. His uh, It gets very, very dark. And it's one of the first times ever in a superhero comic, especially in a Marvel comic and a mainstream superhero comic, where you see a superhero really, truly beaten to the point where you're not sure they're going to come out on the other side. There's more than one point where it seems like they've been, Daredevil has been crushed uh, past the point of redemption, which is where the name Born Again comes from. And it also is uh, has a very strong Catholic theme in it, which we see in season three, where they really lean into Matt's Catholic upbringing, his Catholic faith, and how circumstances that he's that he's around really affect him. I thought the theology, the Catholic theology was handled very effectively. It's not easy to blend uh, like high church theology and, and long conversations with priests and nuns into a superhero show. Uh, it, it was another big risk. I know that we all have religious backgrounds. It felt sort of tailor-made for somebody like me to the point where I wondered if it would turn somebody who wasn't interested in Catholic theology off a little bit. But speaking for myself, I thought it worked really, really well. Yeah, I think it's. I think they do a good job of of bringing up these these strong ties that Matthew has to the church. Um, obviously, his frustrations that he has that you you know you learn it when you watch season three. Um, he has a lot more anguish just with things that he finds out in his life. And um, but I don't think that it was so um, pessimistic about that, which I appreciated because that's just so expected these days. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the way they handled it. Yeah, I thought they did a really good job with really delving into that part of the character. I feel like that's something that gets overlooked a lot as a key component of Daredevil. And I think also really grounds him, um, both in the comics, I would say, and in the show, in kind of a unique way. You know, they they talk a lot about making Daredevil like a street-level hero. And, you know, I mean, for a large portion of the world's population, like being 
you know, kind of a normal person, like street level, so to speak, probably means you have some sort of religious mm-hmm. affinity. So, I, you know, I do think that gives that lends credibility um, and a little more kind of like gritty realness, um, not gritty in like a Zack Snyder way. <laughs> that, that just lends a lot more realism, I think, to the character that, you know, we're expected to assume is sort of like a person just like us um, as opposed to, you know, a superhero. And I mean, it also taps into like my, like the reason I like superhero stuff to begin with, which is like, they're supposed to show us like the best of what we can be. And, you know, I think as real a character as you can make to have that, you know, can be a really effective way of doing that. Before we get too much further into talking about uh, the sort of the, the born again stuff and, and the, the comic book inspirations for season three of Daredevil, I do want to talk a little bit about that arc and the guy who created it, Frank Miller, which we'll be talking about a little bit in the script. When did superhero comics actually transform from lighthearted kid stuff to more serious, gritty crime sagas? How did Batman go from the square-jawed, thanks old chum, pudgy goofball of the late 60s to the bone-crunching, tell-me-do-you-bleed dark knight of today? How did the blue-suited dorks of the early X-Men comics lead to the R-rated, esophagus-shredding movies like Logan? As you might guess, there wasn't exactly a moment When Marvel Comics first came onto the scene, they targeted a slightly older demographic than DC had been with angsty teenaged Spider-Man, a far cry from the moral lessons Batman was delivering to Robin at the end of every issue. But it was still all primary colors and stern moral codes. Whether Marvel or DC, superheroes never doubted that they were on the right side. They did good things and bad guys did bad things. Even when tougher, surlier characters like Wolverine were introduced or when Batman ditched Robin, their only major character flaws as far as readers were concerned were being loners or smoking a cigar. And for the most part, comic fans were okay with that. But Frank Miller wasn't. Frank Miller was young, just 21, when he first started helping out around Marvel. He'd grown up in Vermont and showed up in Soho the way lots of young New York transplants do with stars in his eyes. He was a comic book nerd who moved to Manhattan with one goal in mind, get noticed. He'd hang out around the Marvel and DC offices, pestering editors, artists, and basically pitching himself and his talents to anyone who didn't just tell him to go get lost. Neil Adams, who was famous for his work on Batman, took an interest in Miller's work and gave him some advice, although he also regularly told him to get lost. But Miller's art improved, and eventually Marvel gave him a gig, drawing Daredevil. It was a low-risk deal for Marvel. Even though Daredevil was being written by the gifted Roger McKenzie, it sold poorly, so no one would care if the artist was a little green. But though Miller wasn't experienced, he had big ideas. He was still infatuated with his new city, and he populated Daredevil's New York skyline with condemned buildings, elevated trains, dangerous dive bars, and rickety water towers. It wasn't exactly a realistic New York City, it was too grimy and run down for that. But Miller had two great loves, expressionistic art and hard-boiled noir detective stories, and he was bound and determined to bring those sensibilities into superhero comics. Years later, a Marvel writer named Joe Duffy would say, quote, Everybody liked Frank's artwork on Daredevil, but when he was working with Roger, it's Roger McKenzie, I don't think anybody realized they were seeing a phenomenon. They would soon enough, 
Miller was ambitious and wormed his way into the good graces of Marvel's higher-ups, taking them out for drinks, where he'd spend hours with them, honing in on who Matt Murdock was and what he was really like and what were his loves, what were his fears. In the past, Stanley had discouraged writers from taking their work too seriously, but the powers that be had a hard time telling someone as eager and sincere as Miller that. Plus, what he was doing was working. Daredevil had gone from, quote, a weak T Spider-Man to a shooting star, as one writer put it at the time. Plus, what he was doing was working. Miller had gone from, quote, a weak T Spider-Man to a shooting star, as one writer put it at the time. Miller started weighing in more and more on the Daredevil plots, and when he and McKenzie started to butt heads, Marvel didn't hesitate to take the season pro off the title altogether. Miller now had free reign to do whatever he wanted, and he intended to transform Daredevil entirely into something resembling the world-weary private eyes he loved, replacing the bright, shiny, spandexed world of superheroes with as many femme fatales, trench coats, and moral gray areas as possible. His first act was to create a new character called Indigo, who would be Matt Murdock's long-lost college girlfriend, who now turned into an assassin for hire. At the time, Miller was getting into kung fu movies, so he decided to give Indigo a ninja twist, and then, to really drive the potential of her mythic quality home, changed her name to Elektra. She debuted in Daredevil issue 168, and it was a smash hit. Miller went from promising newcomer to industry superstar overnight, and Daredevil went from gimmicky Z-lister to being the cool superhero. The rest of Marvel's big names were hanging out at tired old discos. Daredevil was at the CBGB. Insofar as there is an official beginning to grim and gritty comics, this is it. Daredevil's sales skyrocketed, and no storyline was too dark or too intense. Kingpin went from just another costumed thug to a cruel and calculating mob boss, controlling his vast web of seedy enterprises from behind an impenetrable desk. Bullseye went from being a formidable, if not quite memorable, villain of the week to one of Marvel's first true sadists, a horrifying psycho who killed for sport and was more than a match for Daredevil, both physically and mentally. And Elektra, Matt's true love, met her death at Bullseye's hands, a fate that sends Matt to the brink of sanity and well over the line of morality, coldly letting the man who murdered his old girlfriend fall seemingly to his death, though, of course, Bullseye did not stay dead for long. You probably know what happened next. Miller soon moved over to DC Comics, where he wrote his smash hit The Dark Knight Returns, and the bridge back to a time when comics were for kids was burned for good. Superhero fans had grown up, and the genre would have to grow up with them, with all the requisite violence, swearing, and sex. All this means that Miller's legacy is, to put it lightly, complicated. There's no denying the skill of his early work or his huge influence, but there's also no denying that his legacy has gotten away from him a little and led to some of the genre's worst excesses in the 80s and 90s. Daredevil changed hands to gifted creators like Brian Michael Bendis and Ed Brubaker, who continued down the path of making Daredevil comics crime stories with superhero characters, complete with plenty of stabbings, moral quandaries, and wayward women. They're pretty great, to be honest, but it would take a lot of work to course correct from the path Miller set the entire superhero genre on. It would take Mark Wade. When we were talking about doing this, we, we wanted to pick a particular run of Daredevil to really try to focus on for this podcast. There, Daredevil, I think, 
pound for pound has maybe the most consistently good sort of lineage of creative teams behind him. Uh, it's been, you have to go back a really long ways before you find any daredevil that's not uh, at least compelling and innovative in terms of the genre. He's had Brian Michael Bendis is where Brian Michael Bendis cut his teeth. We talk about him a lot. Uh, Maliv was very involved. Uh, Frank Miller, who we just learnt, talked about a lot, is his shadow looms very large over this genre. We wanted to talk a little bit about the most recent completed run, uh, which wrapped up just a few years ago. And that was a run, it had a, a couple different artists on it, but the writer throughout was Mark Wade. Uh, Mark Wade has been in comics for a long time. He has a number of iconic runs, uh, Superman, Captain America, uh, Black Widow, and uh, and now he has he, his Daredevil arc is, I think, as good as Daredevil has ever been. But it's very, very different. His Daredevil is a, is a huge departure from the Daredevil that Frank Miller created and that then just kept going of this, this extremely dark character. It's an extremely psychologically tormented character who uh, is, is, is very grim and can be, was even sort of emotionally uh, broken, uh, seen as a, as a psychologically uh, damaged figure. Wade very intentionally steers away from that back to a sort of a more swashbuckly, much more lighthearted, but intentionally so, uh, knowingly so character. Uh, how much did you guys delve into Mark Wade's run? After we recorded the Hawkman episode um, two weeks ago, and we decided on Daredevil, I immediately started on uh, reading Wade's run again that night. Uh, because I feel like we consistently talk about how great of a run it is, but I haven't read a lot of the issues since like it launched seven years ago. And so it was it was just crazy because like I remember reading it the first time and like feeling like I was reading something really a really unique thing in that in that moment. And I felt that same thing again like where a smile immediately came over my face with how much fun wade does have with the character and like and matt even does he does address it in the book like really early on yeah uh like how he does have this new lease on life uh which like it totally does set that tone apart like they're intentionally setting that tone apart like you said from the bendis run the brubaker like those all that that came before him i i think the book fits in this like really interesting time like when we're looking at Marvel, even as a whole, if it's in this really interesting window of time where they uh, they were taking a lot of lighthearted approaches to a few of their characters. And I feel like it was to combat the darker tone that DC was taking with a lot of their new 52 titles. In that process, I think we, like I think that they made a really good call with what they did with Daredevil. Like, granted, they had a few misses, but like we got, you know, we got a book like this. We got a book like Fractions Hawkeye. Um, but both very unique takes on characters that like don't really like that we've never seen anything like done before. Um, so like Wade taking this Wade taking this approach on Daredevil and Matt Murdock was just like a really it was a really amazing thing that like to see a such a dark character like really pivot out of that darkness uh, and it actually feel really natural and give us a lot of fun stories to come out of it. I think you're right, Chris, in that it was very intentionally set up as DC was moving sort of darker and more uh, grimmer with its new 52 launch, uh, having Mark Wade take Daredevil in a, in a markedly light direction felt very intentional on their part. And I'm sure it wasn't an easy sell. It was a big departure from what had come before. 
but it immediately felt like, and, and this is something that I, I noticed, io9 wrote an article about how in the midst of Wade's run, they wrote an article with the headline, the best daredevil is a happy daredevil. And they made a good case for it. It's a good article. And, and we'll share it in the show notes for this on our, on our Apple podcast page. But Wade responded to that article and said, I would actually say the best daredevil is a happier daredevil. Because like you said, as Matt Murdock addresses early in the run, he's aware that he has spent the past few years in a very emotionally fraught place. And Mark Wade's run finds him intentionally trying to be more optimistic and making a decision to focus less on his uh, emotional issues, on his depression, and trying to, to change his perspective Sometimes he does that well, and as the series shows, sometimes he does not. He he does he isn't always successful with it. And somebody who has emotional issues, as this series has shown Daredevil to have, needs to be upfront about that. That it's not as simple as making a decision just to be happy. But the fact that they show him trying to overcome is a very nuanced and substantive arc to take for superhero comics to take with the character and and i think wade depicts it with a lot of honesty and, and it's very compelling i mean i also think that part of what wade is pushing back on too is that like that's the reason the story works so well i mean it works on its own too but i like i think it works better if you have the history i mean because wade's run came directly on the heels of brubaker's run um which like Gr- brubaker's run is amazing um i just read it this weekend you know, he's essentially writing a crime comic um, with Daredevil at the center of it. And, you know, it's when Brubaker was at, like the height of his, you know, he's writing the death of Captain America. Like, you know, it's when he's he's starting Criminal with Sean Phillips. Like, it's like fully flexing his creative muscles. And it's amazing. Um, and I think, you know, the reason that Daredevil's approach and, or, uh, you know, Matt Murdock's like effort to, like try it happiness um is so compelling is because like he really doesn't have a reason to be happy outside of you know trying to actually be a good friend to the people he's cared about i felt like that's a little bit echoed in season three of daredevil i hope this isn't going too far into spoiler territory but um you know like at some point realizing that you know your behavior and your sort of like his sort of almost indulgent uh like torturous masochism um is basically having the effect of pushing away the people he cares about and realizing that the people he cares about like are going to keep coming after him no matter what he does like it, it feels like wade's whole run was kind of you know an attempt to start to let some light in um on a character that had been put really put through the ringer so yeah i mean i, I think you know you're not really gonna go wrong for like a lot of years of daredevil um but wades is certainly like up there with my favorite comic runs of all time and i think that the what the show does well and and season three in particular does well and that mark wade does very well is daredevil has a a very probably more so than most comic book characters matt murdoch has a pretty well a, a deep bench of friends who aren't superheroes they're just his friends and and he's a bad friend to them. And the TV show and the comic have always been very upfront about the fact that Matt Murdock is selfish and he's he's narcissistic and he puts his own what he thinks is best for himself and his friends above what they think. He doesn't give them any autonomy. He thinks that their lives revolve around him and what he wants for them. 
And so he doesn't have any problem playing God with their fates. And, and it's sort of a stand-in for a lot of the characters and shows that do treat their side cast or supporting cast as if they don't have anything better to do than to worry about the main character. But Mark Wade turns that into sort of a, he turns that bug into a feature by really highlighting Matt Murdock trying to be really trying to be a better friend and, and trying to address the things that he's done poorly in the past. And season three of Daredevil brings Matt face to face with his evils as well the things that he's done wrong in the past. And, and I think it large, it's largely very successful with that. Yeah. It's, it's funny um, because I feel like we talked about Daredevil a few years ago. I think it was right after season one came out, wasn't it? When we did a bird plane podcast episode. Yeah. I think it was right after yeah. season one. Been, and yeah. I feel like we were all kind of riding the high because we were so excited because season one was so excellent. And I remember after, and I was, I, I looked at Wade, I was going to read Wade and I ended up going with Bendis's run, I think. And we were t- t- talking about it then um, because I, I couldn't like detach myself from the serious kind of, I hate to say it, gritty tone of, <laughs> of season one. Cause I mean, season one is, it's uber violent. It's pretty dark. And so I tried reading Wade's. I'm like, and, and Wade's is so much, it, it's such a different take on it. I was like, what, what is this? Like, I couldn't get into it. This time around, I knew that we were. I went, I was really excited to read Wage Run. I knew, like you know, critically, it was it's awesome, but just at that time, I just wasn't very interested in it. And I was so happy that we chose to to read this, just because I can't imagine going back and, and rereading Ben. This is Run. Not that those those are great, and and it's interesting to to like see the two takes on this character because like they really like I don't know of too many characters I feel like in comics that have such different tones to them. With the same, you know it's pretty unique to be able to see that with not like a huge gap in time and not like two different characters playing the same superhero, you know? Um, but I, I love Wade's run. It was, it's super, it's more enjoyable to read. And I feel like it's been kind of a shitty week. And so it was, it was like a really welcome change. And as much as, and even though the, the series itself is intense, it really works. Like Daredevil's character doesn't need to be like this brooding asshole, you know, um, who's like totally unconcerned with how his life is affecting that of his friends. And what makes these kind of like the street team, if you will, these superheroes um, like really special and unique to watch is because they have a support system around them. Usually, you know, Jessica Jones has Malcolm and Mm -hmm. that's what makes those, those characters different. I think maybe from like the Thors, you know, and so it was. It's nice to see that become less of like the, the hindrance to this character's you know ability to be a superhero and and their actual strength instead. I think most superhero comics, on some level, are about how do you how do you make a difference in difficult times? How do you fight evil when it's hard to fight evil? And and they're feel it's sort of a mixed bag in terms of whether or not. Uh, <laughs> these are relatable for us. They're like most of us aren't going to put on a Spider-Man costume and swing around downtown. Although the temptation is always there, <laughs> but I think that Mark Wade's Daredevil run gets a little bit deeper and more relatable in the in the sense that it becomes a little bit about how do you just be a good person in when it's difficult to be? How do you how do you juggle? You're the many stresses of being of being alive, of being a person in the world, and still rise above all that to also be a, a good friend to people when they need a good friend. How do you prioritize 
the things that are important to you and the people who are important to you and stop taking them for granted and start really investing in them. And especially with, with regards in Wade's run to Foggy, who has some very touching scenes in Wade's run. And it's hard to think of very many other superhero comics where you just get to see two men, uh, Matt Murdock and, and his friend Foggy Nelson, just sharing a, a very deep platonic bond and, and trying to invest in that. And that's really touching because you don't see, I don't think we see a lot of depictions of friendship, just pure friendship in any medium, uh, but you do see it in, in Daredevil and that's, it's memorable and it's important, I think. So my question is then, if assuming that Daredevil gets renewed for season four, which I think is an open question right now, I have no idea if it'll happen or not. Can the show sort of mirror this? Can the show do what Mark Wade did with his run? Is this tone, this uh, characterization even open or have they really committed themselves to the very grim, which season three still retains a very grim aesthetic to it? Yeah, I feel like they're too committed to it. It would honestly be pretty similar to what they did True. with yeah. Ragnarok after uh, first and second Thor. And thinking about it that way, I think they definitely could do that. Yeah, it'd be it would be interesting to see if they could pull it off. I've also I've never seen Charlie Cox in any kind of comedic role, so I don't mm-hmm. know how much his like comedic timing would really uh, lend itself here. But yeah, I don't know. I'd say give it a shot. Especially, I'd be interested in even seeing like as they're moving forward with the Disney streaming service, if they're going to end up moving this over to that and like giving it a little bit more freedom to do like what it wants, like uh, even like within the bigger scope of the Marvel cinematic universe. Do you think they could do that? Could they just take it off Netflix and put it over on Disney plus and make it part of like a, a kind of less the bastard child of the MCU and more an official member of the family. If there was any show they were going to do it with right now, it would daredevil right yeah i feel like there i've read a lot of people who really want like some sort of spider-man and daredevil crossover which is like uh like historically like fun and entertaining like interaction between two heroes uh in the comics so i mean like if they ended up doing that it'd be awesome but even just seeing like Peter Parker go to Matt Murdock for legal advice or something. I wouldn't need a full like Daredevil meets Spider-Man movie, but if you could just give, give him a little uh, cameo in the MCU, that would, that would really warm my heart. Yeah. I don't see Matt Murdock like cracking jokes, but I could see like, if you brought in a character like Peter Parker and it kind of makes their relationship funny. is like, just like the jabs that Matt Murdock has for Peter Parker. I feel like that could work. In terms of seeing uh, Charlie Cox in a comedic role, I, I don't know if Stardust counts as a comedy. Kind of, it is. It's just like, I don't know if his character was particularly comedic. He wasn't cast in that because of his comedic chops, no. for sure. <laughs> True. I think they could pull it off if they wanted to, um, changing it up. But my only my only reluctance in wanting that to even happen is I really loved um, The Punisher and Daredevil kind of playing off each other. I, I just thought they did such a good job with that. So I don't know if it makes sense to abandon the tone altogether that they've created within that that Netflix kind of universe, if you will, because I would love to see those two share some screen time again. I also think that, you know, you also run into the trouble of like the medium of TV versus the medium of comics. Um, you know, in comics, it's super easy to turn over a character to an entirely new creative team and they can do whatever they want with it. 
and I think, you know, Thor Ragnarok aside, which I think is a good example, um, it's really difficult to do that with established actors and like established tones, especially on TV seasons where everyone's kind of expecting something. Like, I feel like they would almost have to do like a separate Daredevil series, like end this one after season three and instead launch a new season or series called like Daredevil Demand Without Fear or something and have a different cast and creative team behind it. Um, and then maybe they could do it then. Is there an example of a TV show that's really effectively changed its whole entire thing? The Good Place, but like, that's but like that was clearly one. like part on the that was like on the books from the get go. Right, I don't know right. if the show's ever like changed and like, decided like you know what it should be a comedy. <laughs> I, it's unlikely, I think, to happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it probably is too. Well, we can dream. Maybe if they put us in charge, it was a big risk for comics where you really can take in a new creative team and totally change the tone. And that is not, that is not infrequent. I don't think it happens as dramatically as it did with Daredevil very often, but it's, it's makes more sense to do it there instead of a TV show. It's a much bigger ask. I agree with you there, Ryan, but I think it's still kind of like you said, Hannah, I I think it's been, it's been a bad week. We're in a difficult time. It's a difficult time for for just to be consume pop culture right now. And I think we're all kind of looking for something that's a little more, brings a little more joy and, and is a little more uh, like, f- I, I, I hate to trivialize what's going on, but but we do need, like you need an injection of fun in your, in the diet of stories and narratives you read. And Mark Wade's Daredevil definitely brings a lot of fun. Uh, but I do feel like it's a gr- fun that's grounded in the awareness that, what's happening in Daredevil's life is difficult and he is nevertheless really trying to rise above it in terms of his perspective in terms of his uh, mental and emotional health he really tries to take care of himself and that is a, a very rare thing to see in any medium especially superhero comics and it's rare to see it handled as well as it is here and so uh, we we've always recommended Mark Wade's Daredevil to you but this is our first real dedication to that I'd say if you're feeling kind of beaten down by the news and the things you're seeing on TV, then you might want to give Mark Way's Daredevil a run uh, because it's it's very inspiring. Yeah, like get yourself like a bowl of ice cream, <laughs> you know, something just something like delightfully wholesome, and just yeah, just dive in. <laughs> and with that, I think we will wrap it up. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. I do hope you enjoyed what you heard, and I hope that you are open to telling other people that you've enjoyed what you heard. We always appreciate the support y'all give us, and if you wanted to go give us a, a good review on our podcast episode page, we would sure appreciate it. That helps more people find us, and I appreciate reading the reviews. Because it just warms my heart. We, of course, want to say thank you to Chad, Michael, Snavely, and Jesse. Those guys at CM Studios are the reasons we sound so good here, and they take out all the bad stuff. And uh, we also want to make sure that you're following us on social media over on Facebook and Twitter on Cape Town Pod. You can, we try to up, post little updates throughout the week and hilarious memes. I don't know what we do. I kind of just, whenever I get a crazy thought in my head, I tweet it. And I think Ryan who runs the Facebook page does the same. So it's, it's pretty good. It's usually not bad stuff. And I delete the tweets that I decide aren't all that funny later on down the road. And I think with that, we will wrap it up. Uh, I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Youngblood. I'm Hannah Mazel. And I'm Ryan Hamm. We'll see you next time. Thanks.